I'm ending my Civil War series with the topic of Abraham Lincoln and Ellen White. There is a most interesting connection between the two of them. Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. This episode is based on excerpts from my book, A Nation in God's Hands, Ellen White and the Civil War, chapter 15, titled Abraham Lincoln, A Prophet to the Nation. Abraham Lincoln's religious experience is one of the great unknowns in American history. Enthusiasts and scholars alike have tried to unravel this mystery in the great president's life and have reached conflicting conclusions. Some have trumpeted that he was a born-again Christian, while others believe that he was an infidel. Different religious groups have claimed him as their own, including the Roman Catholics, Methodists, Quakers, Freemasons, and Spiritualists. But Lincoln would not fit into any religious pigeonhole or denomination. He was a very spiritual man, but not an Orthodox Christian. He attended church services, but never joined a church, prayed, but was never baptized, read the Bible, but said little about Christ. His wife, Mary Todd, best captured the unique nature of her husband's spirituality. He was not a technical Christian, she said, but he was always a religious man. Although we will never get to the bottom of Lincoln's private religious thought or definitively weigh the competing claims about his personal piety, explain historian Richard Cowardine, there are unmistakable signs that, from the time of his election, he attended to religion with growing seriousness, that his ideas about God's role in the universe sustained a marked change, and that these notions informed how he thought about his administration's purposes. Early in the war, Lincoln was struck with the immensity of national pain at so much spilt blood. He personally experienced the loss of close friends on the battlefield, such as Elmer Ellsworth and Edward Baker. The hardest blow was the death of his little son, Willie, from typhoid fever in February of 1862. Both the president and his wife grieved deeply over this loss, leaving Mary on the verge of a nervous breakdown and Lincoln to pick up the pieces while trying to manage the war. According to William J. Wolfe, the erosion of these forces may be traced in the deepening facial lines of almost every subsequent photograph of Lincoln. The personal losses turned him toward a deeper piety than he had ever known before, and the national crisis inspired him to probe beneath the seeming irrationality of events for a prophetic understanding of the nation's history. Ellen White claimed a prophetic understanding about the war and declared it as God's scourge on the nation for the sin of slavery. By the end of the war, Lincoln had reached the same conclusion, although not through any prophetic visions like White had claimed. His prophetic understanding was of a different nature. It involved through his experience in the war and found its fullest expression in the second inaugural address on March 4, 1865. Let's go back in history and experience that event. As Inauguration Day, March 4, 1865 approached, the state of the war looked good for the Union. The Confederacy was essentially shattered. Sherman was marching through the Carolinas, wrecking havoc on Confederate resources. Sheridan had almost finished off the remnants of the Confederacy in the Shenandoah Valley, and Grant was besieging Petersburg, Virginia, just 20 miles south of Richmond. 
After four years as a war president, Lincoln looked ahead to four years as a peace president. People flocked to Washington for the festive occasion. Hotels were overflowing and buildings all over the city offered sleeping places, cramming people into every conceivable space. Each day, the Washington newspapers provided a list of the notables who were arriving. All knew they were coming to witness a historic event. The idea had taken hold to make the inauguration a national holiday. So throughout the North, festivities were planned. The president had earned the respect of the people and had proven himself to be a great leader in a time of war, argued some supporters. He deserved to crow a little bit. Many anticipated a speech that would vindicate Lincoln's first four years and herald the impending victory over the enemy. March 4 dawned with incessant rain, and the streets oozed with soft mud that locals described as a black plaster. As the thousands of visitors made their way to the Capitol, many were streaked with mud from head to toe. The inaugural parade began to move by 11 a.m., and the rain suddenly ceased at 11.40, although the sky was still dark with angry clouds. As the service officially began at 12 noon, the outgoing vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, gave his farewell speech, followed by the vice president-elect, Andrew Johnson. Johnson had been ill, and an hour before the ceremony, he drank some whiskey in order to feel better but he evidently got carried away and drank three full glasses. As he rambled incoherently through his speech, it was obvious to all that he was drunk. The dignitaries at the occasion were mortified, and observers could see the expressions of shock and indignation on their faces. President Lincoln, as one historian put it, closed his eyes, lowered his head in despair, and appeared to withdraw into himself. After Johnson took the oath of office, he grabbed the Bible and said in a blaring voice, I kiss this book in the face of my nation of the United States, and followed his words with a drunken kiss. Lincoln bent over to a marshal for the inauguration and whispered, Do not permit Johnson to speak a word during the exercises that are now to follow. After the ordeal with Johnson was over, Lincoln was escorted onto the wood platform extending from the east front of the Capitol. As he was introduced, the crowd erupted in loud cheers for several minutes. Noah Brooks, a friend of Lincoln and a correspondent for the Sacramento Daily Union, described what happened next. Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln, rising tall and gaunt over the crowd about him, stepped forward to read his inaugural address, printed in two broad columns upon a half sheet of fool's gap. As he rose, a great burst of applause shook the air and died away on the outer fringes of the crowd like a sweeping wave upon the shore. Just then, the sun, which had been obscured all day, burst forth in its unclouded meridian splendor and flooded the spectacle with glory and light. Many who were there remembered the sudden light of the sun and commented on it years afterward. As Lincoln spoke, the noted Washington photographer Alexander Gardner recorded the event for posterity in a memorable picture, the only occasion in which the president was photographed while delivering a speech. Ironically, the picture captured Lincoln in the shadow of death. Up behind him, on the right buttress, stood John Wilkes Booth, the actor who seethed 
with hatred toward the president. He was hoping to do something heroic for the South and had come to hear what this, as he believed, false president would say. In the crowd before him, Lincoln recognized the articulate black abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who had been dismayed at the president's first inaugural address and had found his words much too conciliatory toward the South. Douglas had visited with the president in the White House several times about issues concerning African Americans, and throughout the Civil War, he had, as one historian put it, whipsawed back and forth from disgust to respect and from despair to hope. But now Douglas was listening intently to the president's speech with the end of the war in view. The rhetorical center of the speech reads, The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of its offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offenseth cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice towards none, and charity for all. With firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow or his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Lincoln's second inaugural address was one of the most eloquent and powerful speeches in American history, with a different focus from his well-known Gettysburg Address. The address is unusually brief, a mere 701 words in five paragraphs that begin with a straightforward and business-like exposition that smoothly transitioned into, as one specialist put it, the color and cadence of poetry. Lincoln's central aim was to prepare the American people for a generous Reconstruction policy, but he chose not to do it by giving a litany of policy recommendations. Instead, as one historian put it, he sought to exercise feelings of vindictiveness and self-righteousness and share his understanding of the nature of the war and the reasons for its long duration. In Lincoln's own understanding of divine providence, God had been preparing him for his task as a humble instrument in the hands of the Almighty during the greatest crisis in United States history. His lifelong familiarity with the Bible, 
his love for his country and its constitution, his careful logic and keen intellect, his careful rhetorical skills, his personal suffering, his growing understanding of God's divine providence and of slavery and race, his efforts to interpret the war in light of God's purposes, all culminated in his greatest speech, the second inaugural address. God had been shaping Lincoln all of his life for this presidency and for this moment. The second inaugural address was his last will and testament to the American nation, as one historian put it. At its core, the second inaugural address was an indictment on the nation for the sin of slavery. Lincoln prosecuted not only the South, but the, both the North and the South for their involvement in the crime of human bondage. The lengthy, lengthy enigmatic third paragraph articulated a lament that cried out for God's justice and the atonement of the sin, or atonement, I should say, for the sin of American slavery. The war itself was that atonement, Lincoln said, the payment for sin. God gave this bloody war to the nation, and if he wills that it continue, then his judgments are true and righteous. The second inaugural address was Lincoln at his finest as a writer and a statesman, but it was more than a speech. It was a Jeremiah delivered in the tradition of the Puritans of New England, who, in the early years of the nation, condemned spiritual and social wrongs in the tradition of the biblical prophet Jeremiah, hence a Jeremiah. In these Jeremiads, the Puritan preachers declared to their congregations the reasons for God's anger and set forth his judgment on sin. In the second inaugural address, Lincoln declared to the nation the reasons for God's anger and set forth his judgment on the American people. He boldly declared that the Civil War was not just a war, but an act of judgment by an offended God, an act of judgment of the nation as a whole, as one historian put it. After reflecting on the second inaugural address, the 20th century American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr stated that Lincoln's faith is identical with that of the Hebraic prophets who first conceived the idea of a meaningful history. He put the whole tragic drama of the Civil War in a religio-dramatic setting. William J. Wolfe argued that Lincoln was one of the greatest theologians of America, not in the technical meaning of producing a system of doctrine, certainly not as the defender of some one denomination, but in the sense of seeing the hand of God intimately in the affairs of nations. The second inaugural address, then, can be considered as Lincoln's theological interpretation of the war. In this framework, Wolfe declared that Lincoln stands among God's Latter-day Prophets, who saw American history in the freshness of prophetic insight. He is the American Isaiah or Jeremiah or St. Paul. Joe Wheeler agreed that Lincoln was the prophet president, and Stephen Mansfield believed that the second inaugural address was Lincoln as a prophet pleading the case of God. Although he made no claim to prophetic visions, the president's message was nevertheless prophetic in its orientation. In this sense, on March 4, 1865, Abraham Lincoln spoke as a prophet to the nation. Ellen White and Abraham Lincoln never experienced any personal connection, but the two were joined in their theological messages about the nation. Both asserted that the war was God's scourge on the nation for the sin of slavery. 
The timing of their messages was different, though. White delivered her message during the first half of the war. Before the war, she warned with prophetic authority that divine wrath was coming upon the land because of slavery. Early in the war, she declared that God is punishing this nation for the high crime of slavery and would punish the South for the sin of slavery and the North for so long suffering its overreaching and overbearing influence. Her last prophetic message midway through the war was the same. I saw that both the South and the North were being punished. In contrast, Lincoln was not ready to declare God was punishing the nation for slavery at the beginning of the war. He suspected that judgment might one day come, but he did not recognize the war as God's punishment for slavery. As the war progressed, protracted with mounting casualties, and took its toll on the nation, he reflected on it in light of divine providence and reached the same conclusion in his second inaugural address as Ellen White had earlier in the war. His religious experience and theological journey were different from hers, but his conclusion about slavery, God, and the nation were, in the end, the same. Only in this sense, the message that the war was God's judgment, are the two connected. Ellen White was a prophet to the Adventist people and provided insight and encouragement during the war. She never sensed a calling to take her message to the nation. Rather, Lincoln was the prophet to the nation. The message of judgment that she delivered to the Adventist was the message that he would deliver later to the nation. Put differently, Lincoln declared in his second inaugural address at the end of the war what Ellen White had declared in her testimonies at the beginning of the war. Thus, one could say that God spoke a message of judgment through both of them at the appropriate time. The significance of the following statement by White early in the war should be noticed in its connection with Lincoln. It looked to me like an impossibility now for slavery to be done away. God alone can wrench the slave from the hand of his desperate, relentless oppressor. The irony of the statement is that the, at the time White published it in August 1861, Lincoln was working towards restoring the Union with slavery still intact in the South. But God alone transformed the same man into the great emancipator by the end of the war. As Lincoln put it himself, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Ellen White made no published comment about the President's Second Inaugural Address but a clue to her thinking about it may be found in the Review and Herald, where the climactic words of the third paragraph of the address were published on March 21, 1865, with the following editorial remark proceeding. The following remarkable and notable sentiment was uttered by President Lincoln in his inaugural address, March 4, 1865. It is an unequivocally acknowledgement that the scourge of war is a direct infliction of punishment upon this nation for the unparalleled crime of slavery. Such a declaration from such a source and on such an occasion will be hailed by many as most appropriate and timely. Frederick Douglass also appreciated those same words as well and often quoted them from memory later in life. 
After the inaugural ceremony, he went to the public reception at the White House to congratulate the president. After waiting in line for hours, he was blocked at the entrance by two police officers who told them that blacks were prohibited. Douglas assured them that there must be a mistake, for no such order could have emanated from, the pres- from President Lincoln, and that if he knew I was at the door, he would desire my admission. Those are Douglas' own words about the event. Eventually, Douglas got in, but not without effort and patience. As he walked into the East Room, he must have felt out of place as a black man in a sea of white faces. Then he saw the president, and in his own words, he described what happened. Recognizing me, even before I reached him, he exclaimed, so that all around him could hear, here comes my friend Douglas. Taking me by the hand, he said, I'm glad to see you. I saw you in the crowd today listening to my inaugural address. How did you like it? I said, Mr. Lincoln, I must not detain you with my poor opinion when there are thousands waiting to shake hands with you. No, no, he said. You must stop a little, Douglas. There is no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours. I want to know what you think of it. I replied, Mr. Lincoln, that was a sacred effort. I'm glad you liked it, he said. No one else could have encapsulated Lincoln's second inaugural address in better words than those chosen by Frederick Douglass. The day after the inauguration, Lincoln commented to his friend Noah Brooks about the sudden light of the sun bursting through the cloud sky, or I should say bursting through the cloudy sky at the moment he rose to speak. Lincoln said he was just superstitious enough to consider it a happy omen. With the war soon to end, perhaps the sunburst was a happy omen for the future as well as God's smile upon Lincoln's sacred effort. But that same day was a mixture of sun, rain, and clouds. If the sun was a happy omen, then perhaps the rain and clouds were a sad omen. For soon after celebrating the war's end, the faces of the northern people were drenched with tears. Friends, thanks for listening. This ends my series on Ellen White and the Civil War. There, of course, is lots, there's a lot more that I haven't covered that can be found in my 460-page book, A Nation in God's Hands, Ellen White and the Civil War. This episode marks the one-year anniversary of the Ellen White podcast, so for those who have stayed with me, I hope you found the episodes of 2023, my first year of podcasting, to be insightful and helpful in understanding and appreciating Ellen White. My next episode in December will address Ellen White and the Triune God. Recently, an anti-Adventist YouTube channel has been misrepresenting some statements I made in an online presentation, so I will speak to that issue. Also, I'm going to share my thoughts on a recent gathering of Adventist historians and scholars on Ellen White. So much more is to come uh, in future episodes, and I look forward to sharing that with you. Again, thanks so much for listening. See you next time.